the National Archives podcast series. They gave the crowd plenty fun. West Indian cricket and its relationship with the British resident Caribbean diaspora. Presented by Colin Babb. Good afternoon and welcome to the National Archives and thanks for supporting the event today. Um, basically, uh, the book is called They Gave the Crowd Plenty Fun. Now, you've got the leaflet there in front of you and it kind of sums up what the book is all about. The subtitle, uh, which is West Indian Cricket and its relationship with the British resident Caribbean diaspora. So it's really, really fully explained. Um, I don't know whether I told you my name, but my name is Colin Babb. And uh, the book actually, um, I was quite lucky that I had some good support for this book from um, Lord Bill Morris of Handsworth, who's kind enough to offer me some spiritual support and also wrote the foreword. And also, I've got to say thank you to Arif Ali, the head honcho at Hansib Publications. Um, some of you may know that Hansib have been going since the early 70s and are one of the longest running uh, Caribbean publishing houses in Europe, uh, let alone anywhere else. And he kindly took the, took the chance and, and to publish the book. So I've also got some catalogues here with um, lots of other books from the Hansib Publications stable. Okay, um, now before we continue, um, I just want to talk a little bit about myself. I don't want to overload it, um, but I just thought I'd introduce myself in terms of my background and why I'm here today, really, because I've been traveling around the country promoting the book and having different types of events. I've done outdoor cricket events. I've done summer fates in Essex, um, libraries in Leicester. You can tell it's a rock and roll circuit. <laughs> and now I'm at the National Archives. And last week I was at Balham Library where we had a, an Anglo-Iranian singer and a Bajan-Nigerian chef. So yeah, it was quite, quite something. Um, I was born in the 60s. I won't tell you what year exactly, but I was born in the 60s um, in London, in the East End. Got to say it like that, East End. Uh, both of my parents migrated to England in the late 50s. Uh, my mother is from Georgetown, Guyana. And if anybody knows Georgetown, I can even tell you the street, East Street, Georgetown, Guyana. She migrated to northeast London with her family and my grandmother in the late 50s, early 60s. My father is from Barbados. I can even be more specific than that. St. Peter, Barbados. And I can even be more specific and say an area called Six Men's Retreat in Barbados. Any Bajans here? No. Okay, great. So that was a waste of time. But never mind. So basically, I, I describe myself as um, uh, a guy beige. Now, guy beige is an interesting thing. I just, it's not my invention, of course. The whole guy beige thing came uh, when I was friendly with some Guyanese cricketers in this country. Um, there were friends of mine, and they were playing around the country in various club matches. And most of them were Guyanese. And uh, I was hanging around with them one day, and they said, oh, uh, where's your family from again? I said, oh, Guyana and Barbados. And, you know, and, and I got this look, you know, that kind of, what? Bajan? You're a Bajan? I got that, you know, Guyanese look. And um, so I said, yeah, my father's from Barbados. And they said, oh, right, you're a Guy Beige. And whenever I was in the field, they'd say, Guy Beige, Guy Beige, or shout at me to get the ball. So that's why that name st that stuck. And, and I, I spoke to another friend of mine recently, and he said that his mother was Guyanese and his father was from Grenada, so he was a Guy Gren. So, you know, this is kind of something which I'm trying to sell a product to everybody here is, is of Caribbean descent. 
Um, my maternal grandfather actually lives in Guadeloupe um, because his third wife is in Guadeloupe and we have lots of extended family there and I'm going to Guadeloupe next week. So um, I guess I could describe myself as a kind of pan-Caribbean person of, of some description. Um, in this country, um, well, the reason why I'm talking about myself is the book essentially is about cricket and its relationship with the Caribbean diaspora, but also it's about me growing up in Britain in the 70s, particularly as, as, a, as a Caribbean diaspora child. And growing up in the 70s as somebody of Caribbean descent was a, was a very, very strange time for many, many different reasons. And uh, I was kind of brought up in a household where essentially the majority of people were, were Guyanese. Uh, most of my Guyanese family, most of my family in this uh, from this country were Guyanese who were from the Caribbean. My Bayesian family don't live, I have no Bayesian family here at all. They're either in Barbados, Canada or, or America. But a lot of my Guyanese family actually migrated here in the 60s, although some have passed away and some have gone back to Guyana or some have migrated to America. You know, uh, as some, some of you of Caribbean descent might know, there's, there was this really famous migration circuit where people would come here from the Caribbean in the 50s and 60s and the 70s then they'd go to Canada or America in the 80s. It was kind of a strange little circuit, and some of my family have done that as well. So essentially, I've always felt a bit more Guyanese because I was brought up in a very, very Guyanese household. And that's how I really um, was aware of cricket for the very first time, when a lot of my Guyanese relatives, when I was, say, six or seven, and I was allowed to stay up with what we call the big people, especially on a Friday night when I didn't have to go to school, I was able to stay up with the big people, and they'd be like eating chana and crackers and, 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 and sold fish and playing dominoes and drinking rum and making a set of noise and always talking about cricket. It was always a thing. All the men would gang up in our little flat and talk about cricket endlessly. And I know my mother, who it, it wouldn't describe my mother as really a cricket fan, but she likes the West Indies winning. She'd always talk about uh, Port Morant and, and, and Kanai and Kalacharan and, and all these players and talk about Clive Lloyd and she'd talk about Clive Lloyd endlessly because he went to the same school as her in Georgetown, um, Chatham High School, in fact. And um, so she was always kind of talking about these people. And I'm seven and I'm eight. I'm in, I'm in like London and I'm thinking, right, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe there's something going on there that I ought to explore. Um, so I always kind of had that Caribbean connection in the household and it was always connected with cricket. And also another thing is that um, essentially when I was growing up, in London, and also I lived in other parts of England as well. Uh, I always, I didn't really have a sense of feeling British at, at any point, at any call. Never felt English, never felt British. Even though I was born here and spent a lot of my life here until I started going to the Caribbean a lot when I was about eight, nine, ten onwards for many, many years, I kind of felt definitely Guyanese and definitely West Indian. I, when I, I was in the house, uh, all I did was eat metem, um, bolognese, curry and roti, rice what we call provisions, soup, I mean soup, and I'm talking soup. My grandmother would make soup with pigtail and, and potato, Irish potato, English potato. Do you understand what I'm talking about, anybody? <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> okay, and souse. Friday night, it was souse with the big people. We, I was e able to have a little bit of souse. And it, this is a how, how I lived. I, so when I stepped out of the house, you know, I had different types of friends from different backgrounds, but I always felt very West Indian. It was only until I got a bit older that I kind of, almost discovered my British self. And, uh, and now I describe my identity as a mixture of Caribbean and Britain. I, I like, there are things in both of them that I kind of like and dislike, so I'm try, I try and blend both of them together. 
So this sense of having a Caribbean's state of mind meant that uh, I supported the West Indies at cricket. There wasn't any alternative. And also, when I used to go to Barbados, I used to always try and watch cricket at, uh, if anybody knows Barbados, the Kensington Oval, which in those days was a, was a quite a ramshackle stadium. Uh, it's much more, it's much, uh, it's tarted up a bit now because of the World Cup. Um, they really renovated it. But watching cricket in the Caribbean as a, as a child during the six weeks holiday, when I used to go home and spend time with my family, was an interesting experience because obviously watching cricket there as a young boy was, was completely different to being in England. You know, you turn up at Border in Georgetown, for example, and people would be hanging off the railings. And there'd be no such thing as a queue. People would just jump in. And you leave your seat to go and buy some sugar cane or something. Somebody be in your seat. You can't tell them to move. You know, so it was all these things I was kind of learning about my Caribbean self through cricket. Like I would, um, I remember in Barbados when I was a, a young boy, I walked down the street and uh, an old man came towards me. And he said, hello. I didn't know who he was, so I didn't say hello to him. I got home. Of course, my grandmother gave me hell. So you saw Mr. Johnson on the street. You didn't say hello? Why should I? I don't know him. But of course, this is rural Barbados, and that happens. You know, in England, you're brought up by your mum, don't talk to strangers. <laughs> you know, then I go to Barbados, and I get told I have to talk to strangers. So, you know, so I had this thought, this strange thing going in my head. I don't know where I'm going, where I'm going. Where, where, where. Anyway, back to the book. Um, the book was launched at the Oval Cricket Ground, very, very symbolic place to launch a book about West Indian cricket. Quite an obvious place, you might say. And uh, there are reasons why the Oval was a perfect place to launch a book. A, um, as you can see, the cover of the book is not a great photocopy, I must admit, is of uh, some people running on the pitch. This is 1963, and the West Indies had just beaten England in, in a match in that, in that series, which I think they won 3-1. And there's some West and a lot of these West Indians, I can tell, they look as though they they just been here a year or two. I can just tell. My mother used to wear trousers like that. In this, I've seen pictures of her doing that. So um, yeah, so this is a great image. The West Indies have won, and there's lots of fun. They're running on the pitch, just celebrating themselves. They're beating the English because in my house when I was growing up in the 70s, the English was always kind of a different being. It was really weird. Even though I went to school with English people, I had English friends. But, you know, in the house, it was always the English. Oh, no, don't do that. English people do that. Huh? What, what do you mean? Oh, don't do that. English people do that. There was always something about English people. They always did strange things that we didn't do. Like, for example, they didn't season their food. I always remember my mum saying, English people, they don't season their food. There was always something that she was saying this all the time. And also, also she was saying, English people can't dance. This is, they can't dance. They have no sense of rhythm. So all these things were drummed in my head. My mum said, they can't dance. They drink too much. They go, da, da, da. So all these things that have been drummed into my head. Whoops. So obviously, you know, if you can beat the English at cricket, you're doing something good for yourself. Uh, I got this photo from the Oval Cricket Ground, um, the original picture, uh, from their library, and uh, I got permission to use it. I still have it. They don't, real don't realise I've still got it at home. Uh, <laughs> and they're not going to get it back. So uh, also another great reason uh, why I love the Oval and why this was an important place to have as the cover was actually I played at the Oval Cricket Ground once. This is true. I played for an under-18s team, and I was reasonably good as a kid. And uh, we played in this uh, tournament, and uh, the winners, the, sorry, the finalists got a chance to play at the Oval. So, you know, I played at the Oval, I got a duck, but we won the match, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I contributed to the team, my presence contributed. And one of the great things about that match was Tony Gregg was in the stands. There were literally about 50 people there, but Tony Gregg was there. He wasn't there to watch us, apparently he was 
attending a, a disciplinary hearing. <laughs> As you know, that's Tony Gregg, right? A colourful character. So uh, another reason why um, the Oval was a really good place to launch this book was because my first cricket match watching the West Indies was at the Oval in 1980 when I saw the West Indies come over on that tour. And um, having watched cricket in the Caribbean, it was the first time I saw that sense of cricket in the Caribbean being recreated here. It was quite a phenomenal thing. I mean, I went to the Oval in 1980, and it was incredible. There were people just outside the ground and around the ground. There were people selling all manner of things. People were selling vinyl records. People were selling sugarcane. People were selling cassettes. People were selling absolutely everything. It just reminded me of the Caribbean. People selling everything that could sell. And then when we got into the seats, you had people selling little um, plastic cups of rum to each other. Yeah, it was incredible. It was like people had come to watch the cricket, but there was a market situation going on. And I found that really interesting, you know. And one of the things I liked about that was that, um, although it's hard to explain that kind of relevance now, but cricket was one of the few places where, as a Caribbean person, you could kind of come together in a public space. I mean, people talk about carnival, carnival, carnival. Yeah, so that's once a year. Cricket, if the West Indies come, you've got five test matches. And you can stand up with your friends, bang your cans, sing some songs, talk about what's happening back home. And in those days, cricket was a bit different in England. You could bring whatever you wanted into the ground. Like my mum used to pack a whole bag of chicken, sorrel, you know, everything you could think of. And we'd come into the ground full of, and eat as, eat as much as we could. There were no security guards telling us what we could and couldn't take. So it was, it was a real public space of West Indianness, And it was a place where it didn't really matter where you were from, um, whether you were Guyanese or Bajan or Jamaican or Solution or Antiguan. We were all kind of together for that, for that five days. I have to speci specify that, for that five days, or those five days. Because one of the myths I always like to explode is this idea that Caribbean people came to this country, we were all one happy West Indian family. You all came here, and, oh yes, we had lots of difficult thing, uh, struggles to face here. We all, that's, that's, that's rubbish. My mother plainly tells me the first time she met a Jamaican was in this country. Never met a Jamaican before. I've met a lot of people from the Caribbean who have not met other people from other islands until they came to Britain. I mean, it does make sense, doesn't it? It's called, it's called migration in exile. Lots of people come from the Caribbean, they pitch up in England, and an Antiguan meets a Dominican for the first time, right? It makes sense, doesn't it? I've met plenty of Jamaicans in this country who've never met a Guyanese until they came to this country. So, you know, these things, these are the different types of relationships which are being formed in this country. And of course, while all this uh, kind of sectarianism within the Caribbean, which, you know, you would imagine it would happen because all these countries are now independent nation states, uh, always happened. And the West Indian team was the only kind of way that we could direct a unity towards. It was like, well, this is a West Indian team, we're all Caribbean, and we're all celebrating their success. It didn't really matter where we were from, you know? Despite the fact that my dad's best friend, the Bajan, said they just, just put 11 Bajans in the team and done. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> you know, I used to argue with him all the time. Why are they picking with Jamaicans and Trinidadians? Man, just send 11 Bajans out there and done. But you can't do that. So basically, you know, that's one of the things I, I loved about the West Indian cricket team. It kind of represented a, a sense of unity amongst all West Indians. It was a really perfect vision and symbol of that. Um, of course, the reason that I say that and place an emphasis on that in the book uh, and in, in other conversations I've had is because um, 
If you compare the West Indian Cricket Board, which was set up in the 1920s, the West Indian Cricket Board administers West Indian cricket. You compare that to un University of the West Indies. You compare that to CARICOM. Um, for those of you who aren't aware, CARICOM is kind of like the version of the EU in the Caribbean. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very long-lasting institution. It's been going since the 1920s. CARICOM and the University of the West Indies are rel relatively recent concepts. So the West Indian cricket team is really the only really long-lasting federal institution that we have in the region. And that's why it's so important for people in the diaspora. We're looking at uh, a kind of a strong, united purpose. Despite the fact that there are endless criticisms of the West Indian Cricket Board, which we can talk about for hours and hours and hours and hours, the fact is it's there and it's a regional federal concept. Um, I guess this, this becomes more and more important um, in the 1960s for a couple of reasons. Um, the federal experiment that we had in the Caribbean was from 1958 to 1962, when the idea was that the Brits would leave and we'd have one lovely federation joined together politically and economically. It'd be all fantastic. But obviously, the Jamaicans and Trinidadians didn't quite see it that way, <laughs> which, you know, is fair enough in a way because, you know, larger islands, bigger economies, you know, it's just the typical regional battles you have wherever you are in the world in terms of the EU or uh, ECOWAS or, you know, it's the same old thing. So obviously, you know, when Jamaica and Trinidad decide that they want to leave the Federation, the idea of a political union disintegrates. And that's something which I thought was neglected um, last year when Trinidad and Jamaica had their 50th anniversary of independence. It got me thinking, while we're all celebrating 50 years of Jamaica and Trinidad, really what we're talking about is the end of the Federation, basically. And it just seemed strange to me that wasn't really commented on. But, you know, that was just a personal opinion, really. So what we have here is uh, an, a region without a political, cultural, and economic link through a federation. So what really happens is that a man emerges who brings all that together, Sir Frank Worrell. Now, what does Sir Frank Worrell do? He's the first black person to be captain of the West Indies for an entire series. George, Head George Headley, uh, Jamaican, was a captain briefly for one match in the 1930s. But Sir Frank Roll emerges, um, this uh, middle-class Barbadian who went to Manchester University, really erudite speaker with a great vision of, of a Caribbean unity through cricket. Forget the Federation, that was collapsing. Frank Roll takes the West Indies to Australia in 1961. They lose the series, but end up being very, very popular with the Australian crowd, who chair them all the way back to the airport in an open-top carriage, open-top car, sorry. So, I mean, th th what I'm trying to say is that if you're living in Britain in the 1960s and you're looking towards some kind of inspiration from the Caribbean, um, it's a cricket team with a black leader leading a federal team stuck together. Now, I did mention the word black there, and I did mention a black leader. But to me, that kind of relevancy is, um, is not something which I want to dwell on, really, because... I really want to talk about this image, which I'm just about to put up in front of you. Have a look at that for five seconds while I drink some liquid. Mm. Okay, good. Okay, fine. So what, what are we saying here? What we're saying here is that uh, I'll give uh, a bookmark to the first person who tells me who these people are. Who are these people? Who are these players? Any clues? Any idea? Yes! Bookmark to this man. Thank you. Give him a round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
Excellent. Sorry, I, I didn't want to be a teacher there. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, I have been a teacher in the past. You could tell by, by that. Uh, basically, yeah, so two very important figures in the history of West Indian cricket in this country. Um, Sonny Rambin here. <laughs> Point. And Alf Valentine here. Um, something very, very important happened um, in terms of West Indian cricket in England in 1950. The West Indies won their very first test match at Lords in England. It was a really huge deal. I mean, it was such a huge deal that um, some of you may know that they made a calypso, a Trinidadian called Lord Beginner wrote a calypso to celebrate after that match called um, Cricket Lovely Cricket at Lords where I saw it. Now, as a bit of theft, I actually took a line from that calypso and decided to use it as a title for my book. They gave the crowd plenty fun. Because in the Calypso, there is a line which is, they gave the crowd plenty fun, second test and West Indies won. Anybody who knows that Calypso will know that line. So I took that line from that Calypso in 1950 and stuck it as a title for my book because it just made a lot of sense to me. First time the West Indies win here, celebrating themselves, and there are only 20 to 30 West Indians in the crowd. This is Britain, this is 1950s. We're only two years after the wind rush here, okay? So mass immigration from the Caribbean only really kicked off from 1948 onwards. So this is two years later. I spoke to um, a Jamaican guy called Sam King, who is probably the only West Indian I've spoken to who was actually at that match. And uh, he told me that, yeah, there are only 20 to 30 West Indians there to witness this. This is 1950. And um, it was amazing. We ran on the pitch. Uh, we kind of did a little parade outside the ground. We sang all our Calypso songs. And it was so important for us to do that because it, it gave us a chance to show to wider society in Britain that, you know, we're here, our presence is here, and we're here to be, uh, you know, taken quite seriously. What Sam King told me was that when he went into his factory where he was working, he said a lot of the English guys, obviously they weren't happy that they lost, but they kind of gave him a little bit more respect because the West Indies had beaten England. And that's something that I kind of stress very heavily when I talk about cricket, is that it gave some West Indians in this country, because not all West Indians like cricket, um, it gave some West Indians in this country a sense of self-respect, that you, know, you could beat in the English at cricket, but also it's something that we can hold on to. You know, it's something that we can point to. And this has more political significance in the 70s uh, which Fire in Babylon, the film, if any of you have seen it, uh, touches on. Although I just have a few issues with the film because I think it talks about cricket in terms of being very much a Clive Lloyd, Viv Richards thing in terms of the West Indies and has a much longer, richer history with this country. It goes back to the 50s. It goes back to Larry Constantine, who came here in the 1920s as a Trinidadian playing uh, for the West Indies when they came here in the 20s. And Constantine ends up playing for a club in Lancashire, in the Lancashire Leagues, in the 1920s. Can you imagine that? A black guy from Trinidad playing in the Lancashire Leagues in the 1920s. To me, that's not just about cricket, it's about migration. He's a pioneer, in my opinion, going to Lancashire in the 1920s and being probably the only black guy in that league. These sort of things are very important to me. It's not just about Clive Lloyd and Viv Richards. I love the Clive Lloyd era. The West Indies are very dominant. They played fantastic cricket. Who wouldn't like that if you're a West Indian fan? But there's so much more, in my opinion, about cricket and how it connects with the community here. 
Another reason why that's very important is because of the cultural and racial dynamics. There's nothing else I can say. I mean, we have a black Jamaican and an Indian Trinidadian. Some might say, so what? I would say, so, so what, what? Because Ramdin is the first Indian, sorry, Carrot West Indian of Indian descent to play cricket for the West Indies. Uh, and this is in 1950. He's, he's broken the mold here. And I like this image because it kind of reflects a, a kind of um, pan-Caribbean vibrancy. You know, we have an Indian Caribbean, a black West Indian, Indian West Indian, coming together, youthful, taking the region forward. All right, I'm going over the top here, but you know what I mean. Anybody who's Trinidadian or Guyanese knows how much the Indian black African um, schism uh, has historically affected those countries' progress. Uh, is any Guyanese Trin or Trinidadian here? Well, yeah, I don't need to say any more. So this kind of, th th that kind of gives you hope, doesn't it? That, oh, right, okay. We've got young, vibrant Indian, young, vibrant black man from the Caribbean moving forward, a Trinidadian and a Jamaican. It's a great symbol, and that's why I like that picture. And obviously uh, what happened is that both of them were spin bowlers, and both of them, Ram and Val, did so well that they bowled the English out at Lord's. So that, for me, is a very, very important image. The other thing I'd like to talk about is this idea of the West Indian self being a black self, which Fine Babylon endlessly went on about. Because anybody who's got any iota of knowledge about the Caribbean and the history of Caribbean cricket will tell you that you know, it's a very cosmopolitan history, the cricket culture and the Caribbean culture. It's the Viv Richards element of you know, red, gold, and green armbands, black power, that's very important. And I responded to that in the 70s as a black guy. I thought that was very important to me. But there's so many other things going on. Basically, in 1973, um, the West Indies has their first Indian captain or player of Indian descent, Rohan Kanai from Guyana. Very, very important. Why is that important? Because you have a regional entity, which is West Indian cricket, being led by Indo-Caribbean man. Do you think that would have happened during Federation? Probably not. Um, I think that's so important that you have a, an Indian Caribbean person leading uh, a federal West Indian entity. So I responded to that quite strongly, especially with my mother being black Guyanese. Uh, she thought that was really important, you know, having uh, Rohan Kanai being captain. So the Caribbean community in this country could respond to that kind of progress in a positive way because I've met people here from the Caribbean who are black, who are mixed race, who are Indian, who are Chinese, who are European, who are Syrian, or who are Chinese. Now, anybody here knows, who's from the Caribbean knows that we are a mixture of all those people, right? Why, why, do, we, why do people in Guyana, Guyana eat chow mein? Why do they eat garlic pork? Tell me why. Uh, curry and roti and dal and doubles and what have you, right? So I'm getting all Guyanese on you, sorry. But you know what I mean. That's why the cricket team is so important, because it projects a cosmopolitan image of the West Indies that you can't see anywhere else. If you're watching cricket in India or Pakistan or Australia or New Zealand, you can see Chandapur, you can see Kalacharan, you can see Kanai, you can see Ramdin, you can see all these people, because apart from the cricket, you probably haven't got any knowledge of the Indian presence in the Caribbean or the Chinese presence or the European presence. So that's why cricket is so important. I just want to counteract that with another projection of image, which is about football. Now, one of the arguments one of the arguments that I hear a lot, which, which has some credence, is that um, 
third, fourth, and fifth generation Caribbean people in this country, they're not interested in cricket or the West Indies because they're into football. That has some relevance, I agree with you, particularly since the Premier League started in the early 80s, which is glamorized football. It's full of money, full of fancy European players, players from Africa, players from around the world. Since, in, since the 1990s, we have so many more black players that if you're a young black guy, you can idolize. In my day, all we had was Clyde Best. <laughs> I don't know whether you remember Clyde Best, he used to play for West Ham. He was, he was from Bermuda, and there weren't many black players around. So I can understand why football makes a, has a strong connection with uh, third and fourth and fifth di generation diaspora. But I think there are other reasons for that, and I think um, it's not just to do with the fact that um, they like football. I, I actually do think a lot of it is to do with if you're born here, and your parents are from the Caribbean, it's like your grandparents are from, from Britain. Sorry, you're born here, and your parents are from Britain, your grandparents are from Britain. So, you know, you meet people who are 10, 15 years old who have Caribbean ancestry, who haven't been to the Caribbean, probably won't do, and there's no reason for them to. And I think that's why that link between West Indian cricket and what you can, what you can uh, describe as a Caribbean community is, is disappearing pretty, pretty fast. Now, I'm just moving on to something else which uh, I think is quite important, which is what Michael Manley said after the um, 1950 victory. And I think I've got the quote here. It's one of the few quotes that I've brought here today because I think it's so important. <coughs> this is what he says. The victory was more than just a sporting success. It was the proof that our people were coming of age. And what he's saying is that the region is, is moving forward because they won the cricket match. Why is cricket so important? We can debate that. They had bested the masters at their own game. I mean, we're talking um, in a period where these countries in the Caribbean were, were not countries. They were just colonial segments in the British Empire. So, yeah, we're talking about the British being the masters in this context. Um, they had done so with good nature, with style, and often with humor. Now, he talks about Reyes, Dolmaya, Worrell, Weeks, and Walcott. He's talking about Bajans. He's talking about Jamaicans. I mean, it's an interesting kind of uh, paragraph there. And the victory was uh, procured by those little pals of man, Pine, Ramadan and Valentine. So what Michael Manley's trying to say, he's trying to put it in a political context. And obviously a man like that must know what he's talking about if he ends up running a country in Jamaica. So uh, basically that's that. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about um, what it was uh, in the 1970s that kind of also led me to see the West Indies as very important to me. Although when I... In the book, it's not all about, um, I think, West Indian cricket is fantastic. It's more about describing the relationship between the Caribbean diaspora and cricket and my personal observations. But also, the book is about me growing up in the 1970s, why cricket was important to me, and describing that period. Because it was a very, very strange time. Because one of the reasons why I think the West Indies were important to me and my family were because watching the West Indies do well on television, beating England or beating whoever, was uh, very important to us because it was one of the few opportunities we had to see black people on television. Because in that period, if a black person came on the TV, it was quite an event, you know. I remember um, one of the few, I, I, I had this image here, I don't know whether, whether I still have it, I probably don't, but one of the few black people on TV was a guy called Mark, who was the guy who pushed um, Raymond Burr in a man called Ironside. I have no idea whether you remember a man called Ironside, but on a Saturday night, that was one of the highlights. 
do you think Mark will be pushing Raymond Burr in the pushchair in his wheelchair? It was quite a big deal. So, and there he was, there was Mark, and he's pushing Raymond Burr, he had the big afro. That was quite, quite exciting for us. The other thing <laughs> which is really exciting for us was uh, my grandmother, uh, who came with my mother. She's passed away, God bless her, but she brought my mother over here, really, in the, in the early, late 50s. Um, she was really into a, a folk pop group called The Spinners. Now, I have no idea whether anybody here knows of the spinners. I have got a picture of them, unfortunately. But they were a folk band, and they had one black guy, a Jamaican guy, called Cliff. And they were quite, quite a big deal for my grandma, this Cliff. Because basically, when a black person was on TV, it would cause a real commotion. Somebody would just have to say, there's a black man on TV. And people would come in from all over the flat to try and see this black man. And then after 30 seconds, he'd gone. So you'd watch the credits to see where he's from. Etienne, he must be from Dominica. And we'd work out where he's from by the surname. Then if he couldn't, we'd phone someone. Did you see the black man on TV? Yeah, yeah, well, it was quite a big deal. So that's why the West Indies are so important, because there were 11 men from the Caribbean, not all black, some were Indian, some were Portuguese, whatever, but representative of the Caribbean, majority black, doing really well. It was so important to us, and that's why my dad bought a colour television. 1973, I come home, and there's a colour television in the house, well, the flat. Why is it there? Because my dad bought it because the West Indies had arrived in 1973 to play against England in a series. And my dad said, the cricket, I'm not good at Bayesian accents, but you can imagine, I've got to get a colour TV for the cricket. Suddenly I realised the ball was red, and the grass is green, because obviously up to then we had black and white TV. And if anybody, of, only people of a certain age can, can remember that transition when you got your first colour TV. It was a very, very significant moment. And therefore we were able to watch the West Indies play in glorious colour. I'm always interested to find out why people get interested in a particular sport. It's always something which I kind of find interesting for various reasons. I got into cricket in terms of watching it through a tournament which was played on a Sunday in England called the John Player League. I don't know if anybody remembers that. It was a 1970s 40-over competition. John Arlott would commentate, and it was on a Sunday on BBC Two. That was my first regular cricket viewing. And I used to watch that every single Sunday, and I was so into the John Player League who would win, who would lose. It was quite a big deal to me. Because it was kind of a trend that I followed, because in the morning, Sunday mornings, because I, I was uh, in the block of flats we lived, in where I lived, I was the only kid who had their own bedroom. Woo! So yeah, I was kind of like a magnet for all these kids coming into my bedroom on a Sunday morning from various, various uh, houses. And I couldn't get rid of them because they're my friends. And we watched Barnaby the Bear and the Jackson 5, the animation Jackson 5 and Cat Weasel. don't know whether anybody remember these programs. And then, and then we'd, for some reason, we'd watch University Challenge with Bamba Gascoigne. I have no idea why, because we try and answer questions. We didn't understand what was going on. And then, obviously, the highlight was the John Play League, you know. And so we'd watch that. And that's one of the reasons I actually got into cricket, through the John Play League. Now, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, this why, why, why cricket and the Caribbean community and why I think the whole relationship is beginning to dislocate? Um, you know, there are various reasons for that. I mean, you might have your theories. I certainly have mine. I think some of the key reasons are that, basically, I think if you're a third, fourth, and fifth generation Caribbean person in this country, it is likely that not all of your family are going to be from the Caribbean. Because, of course, as Caribbean people, we're the great integrators. We have relationships with anybody and everybody. 
I always say this, and people get a bit, oh, that's a bit, bit, bit naughty. But it's true. If you're a Caribbean person, you, why wouldn't you have a relationship with an English person, an Irish person, Polish person, Nigerian person, Scottish person? I mean, that's just the way we are. We just integrate. That's why we have thousands and thousands of mixed-race people in this country who are half Caribbean, half something else. It's because of that kind of integration, which Caribbean people do more than any other ethnic group in this country, which is why you have third, fourth, and fifth generation of people who Caribbean is only part of their self. It's not the whole part of what they are. Um, and which is just what it, what, the way it is. I look at the England football team, and I think that just sums up uh, visually what, what we are now, you know, which is interesting. You know, we have Aaron Lennon, right? We have David James, we have Rhea Ferdinand, we have Glenn Johnson, Kyle Walker, Theo Walcott, who's the new hotshot from Tottenham, uh, Andrews Townsend, all mixed race. All half Caribbean, half black, or, or Caribbean, half white, or in Townsend's case, half Caribbean, half Cypriot. There's a footballer who plays for Turkey called Colin Kazim Richards. He's half Antigua and half Turkish. So this is quite normal for us. So therefore, that kind of um, pull towards the Caribbean is slightly unhinged by the fact that um, a lot of Caribbean people in this country are mixed with other communities in terms of our families. I think that's kind of part of it. And another thing is, I think, the way we interpret and relate to a sport. You know, when I was younger, there's no way I would have Im imagined somebody of Caribbean and English descent driving motor cars. Lewis Hamilton. Can you imagine if someone said to me while I was watching James Hunt and Ayrton Senna on the TV that we'd have a mixed race guy from Britain representing the UK at Formula One? I would, you know, really? Oh, that's interesting. The other thing, of course, is uh, gymnastics. It was Lewis Smith quite a character, mixed race guy, all credit to him. And you know, it's, these are different images and personalities that are doing different things. There's another guy called Courtney, he's a guy and he's guy, he's uh, uh, representing a gymnastics club in Kent, watch out for him. He's going to be a force as well, Courtney Tullock. Um, and also in rugby union, we have uh, quite a few players of Caribbean descent playing rugby union. So it's not just about football, there are other things that Caribbean people who are young can do with their time. Cricket is not the prime focus, because I don't want to go on about the 70s. When we were growing up then, well, I mean, there were, there were limited choices in terms of what you, what you could or couldn't do socially or in terms of your leisure. So I think that's very, very important. Um, another thing is that um, in terms of the, the region, in terms of the diaspora, I think that um, America is a place where perhaps that, that relationship is going to be strengthened or should be strengthened mainly because of the expanding Caribbean diaspora in the US and Canada, which is expanding and expanding and expanding. Because migration to this country, really, from the Caribbean, ceased to be mass in the 70s and 80s, really, to be honest with you. So maybe that's the place where the West Indies should tour more often. Why come to England? What's the point in coming to England when there are only going to be about 50 Caribbean people in the stadium? You might as well go to America. They went to Florida, the West Indies, a couple of years ago, played against New Zealand, and the as you know, there are many, many Caribbean people who live in Florida. And it was absolutely packed. And Lance Gibbs has gone on record to say, I've even got the quote here, I'll read it to you. He actually did say that Florida has got the most unique type of weather that could accommodate cricket all year round. So Lance Gibbs is saying, basically, that the West Indies should tour America more often. I think that's, fairly, that's, I think that's a fairly interesting suggestion, you know. Um, just quickly, um, just this whole thing about what is being a West Indian. Um, I like to throw this out to audiences. I really got in trouble uh, with some 
audiences in some of the places I've done where I've done West Indian clubs and I throw this thing out and you always get a lot of people getting angry. But why have a West Indian cricket team? Does it really matter? What, what is a West Indian now? I mean, when the West Indian cricket team was formed, they were basically a collection of colonial territories banged together to form the West Indies. What, what, does it, does it, there isn't a, is there such thing as the West Indies? I mean, if you're a Trinidadian, are you West Indian or are you Trinidadian? I don't know. Maybe that whole regional togetherness thing doesn't matter anymore. I mean, when I was in Guyana a couple of years ago, I heard people talking, and there was few Trinidadians there, who were saying, why, why, sh why don't we just forget the West Indian cricket team and just completely play individually? So we just have Trinidad, Guyana, uh, Jamaica, forget the West Indies, as they do in internal 2020 competitions and regional competitions. Forget having West Indies tours, just have individual island boards as individual countries and individual test-playing nations. I just thought I'd throw that out to you, because it's an interesting theory, really. What is a West Indian? Does it matter? Does being in Caricom matter? Uh, Carl Samuda, who's a former commerce minister in Jamaica, last year called uh, uh, Caricom a, a hallucination. He described the, the single market in the Caribbean as something that Jamaica should withdraw from. So what's the point? Are we West Indian? What does it mean? Maybe the, these kind of ideas of pan-Caribbean unity are more fragmented now than they used to be. Um, that's just, a, that's just a, something I can throw out there. Um, finally, just purely for a bit of fun, uh, because the book is called They Gave the Crowd Plenty Fun, I just want to show you a couple of images which are in the book, which I think are quite interesting. Uh, this is Viv Richards scoring 232 in 1976 against England at Trent Bridge. Phenomenal. Um, I have, normally when I do longer talks, I talk about the Tony Gregg thing in 1976 and the Grovel thing. Um, this guy here is Colin Hutton. I met Colin Hutton recently. He's uh, quite ill now, but he was a policeman at the Oval in 1975. And what had happened here is some West Indies had nicked his hat. <laughs> and he spent a long time trying to get it back. And uh, the picture was taken. I met this, um, this policeman. He was telling me some great stories about policing West Indians in the 1970s, which, of course, was a much more difficult task because one of the things I remember from watching cricket here was you just ran on the pitch whenever you could, you know, basically. Any opportunity, you ran on the pitch. You can't do that now for various reasons. I understand to an extent why. But there was always, always, you know, we'd be, like, right up <coughs> against the fence. And at Lords in those days, you could sit on the floor, couldn't you? And there's a boundary rope. That, so Chris Broad once hit, hit a shot down to fine leg, and I, managed to, I fielded it before it crossed the rope. I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure Dickie Bird was tearing his hair out, but I'm sure he signaled before. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a lot, lot different then. And obviously, you know, running on the pitch was part of what you did. But it wasn't just a West Indian thing. A lot of my English friends did it as well. We all ganged together. I know something would happen, you just run on the pitch. You get about this far, then you see Ian Botham and you'd probably run back, you know. Because <laughs> we were all scared of Ian Botham when he was standing by the... We didn't want to say anything too rude. Uh, it's funny, that, isn't it? And this is a, uh, a record made by um, a guy called the Man Zeke. And the Man Zeke, I traced him in Jamaica. He lived here for a very long time. He made a record which is very, very important to, to the whole story of uh, West Indians in Britain and cricket, which is called Who's Grubbing Now? I don't know whether anybody remembers that. Who's Grubbing Now? Who's grubbing now? Just saying it there. It was all about 1976. I, I mean, you're probably aware of the Grovel story, but I won't go into it in too much detail. Basically, um, Tony Gregg, in his very South African accent, said he would make the West Indies Grovel. This is 1976, just before that test series. 
You know, I've got a lot of time for Tony Gregg. He was a lot. He was a big hate figure for a lot of West Indians in this country, but I still had a sneaking respect for him, and I think a lot of West Indians did. Uh, basically, the West Indies won the series. All those words got rammed down Tony Gregg's throat. It was the summer of '76. It was very hot. It was, it was a drought. I remember starting secondary school in this country in a comprehensive school in London. So it was all very, very important to me and also for a lot of West Indians here. And uh, the man is he made a record. Who's groveling now? Who's groveling now? Greg, you're a... There's some rude words there. Uh, and it continues, uh, basically. So it's a very important record. I remember people buying the vinyl record when I went to see the West Indies play at the Oval. So some guys were literally selling there. I met the guy who put the record out, who took boxes to the Oval and was selling them out of the box. I met him and I interviewed him. Uh, basically, um, I'm gathering material for the second edition of the book, which I think will be bigger and better. A couple of more images here. Uh, this is Blackwash. Yeah, 1984 series when the West Indies won all five test matches. Uh, this is uh, Alvin Kalacharan with his son there. Uh, just take you through a few images. Those aren't very important because they're not very good. But that's Gordon Greenwich signing autographs at an event at London Metropolitan University, which was to promote uh, the West Indies as a tourist destination during the World Cup. So um, basically, um, what can I say? I mean, cricket's very important to me, and I just think that it's, it's whatever you say about the West Indian presence in this country, you cannot deny that cricket was a very important part of our presence here. And not only that, it's part of um, sporting history and cultural history that a lot of people can tap into. It's not just about being West Indian. When I do a lot of these events, I meet people from various backgrounds and cultures and, uh, who actually enjoy the idea of talking about West Indian cricket, because you don't have to be West Indian to like West Indian cricket. I've met many English people who love the Clive Lloyd side and the Viv Richards side. I met somebody at a talk I did in Hertfordshire who was at the 1950s match, an English guy. He came to my talk, he was quite old and he came because he was there at 1950 when England lost to the West Indies. I was so quite humbled with that. So yeah, you can't deny that connection. It's a very important connection. Obviously, that has been lost now for various reasons. Also, you can't hide the results. In the last 15 years, the West Indies have not, uh, well, let's, let's face it, the results have been poor. And I think that's something that's part of the story. Uh, Bill Morris, I don't want to quote him, but he did tell me, Colin, you know, what you have to say in this book is that the results are part of that process. You can't hide from the fact that people want to be associated with success and not failure. I think that's very important. Also in the Caribbean, you could argue about cricket's importance there. I think in Barbados it's still important, and Guyana, but my Jamaican friends say that cricket really is on a downward slide compared to football and athletics. Although, Usain Bolt has come out and said that he wanted to be a cricketer when he was younger. Uh, so there you go, you know. He would have run a, run a couple of quick singles pretty well, I would have thought, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of, kind of it. I just want to actually show something. It's just a bit of, bit of fun. Uh, this is something I used to do with a flatmate of mine. We used to say, what would be your top 11 players of all time as a team? And basically, what I did, I decided, have I got 11 players there? Thank you. It should be 11. What I decided, I thought, well, I'm not going to pick the best 11 players of all time, for my opinion, uh, because obviously there were a lot of great players who played before I was born. Um, I just picked the best 11 that really influenced me as a, as, a, as a boy growing up in this country and as an adult. This team, all these players really influenced me as, as, a, as a cricket fan and, and, and as a West Indian person in this country. And as you can see, not all of them are West Indian. I, I love Jeff Boycott. Now, when I said this, I did a talk in Hertfordshire, 
and there was a Trinidadian guy who was tearing his hair out. How could he say he loved Jeff Boycott? And he was giving me, he was cussing me down. I couldn't believe it. But yeah, I love Jeff Boycott. So what? I lived in Yorkshire for a while. I'm a Leeds United fan, but that's got nothing to do with it. I, 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 do, I do like Jeff Boycott. I, I, love, I, I love the idea of a batsman who said, I'm going to turn up 11 o'clock and I'm going to be there at stumps. That's what an opening batsman's supposed to do in test cricket, isn't it? You can have one guy at one end playing all the fancy shots, but you want somebody holding up an end. I love the fact that he was a player who worked very hard in his game. He wasn't a great, talented batsman, but he worked very hard to be the best that he could be with lots of Yorkshire grit. And he's loved in the West Indies. When he comes out of Barbados, taxi drivers don't charge him. He's well loved. A lot of English people hate Jeffrey Boyker, but a lot of West Indians love him. I think that's quite interesting. Gordon Greenwich, fantastic guy. Um, my um, cousin is actually working on the redesign for his school in Barbados, funnily enough. Just thought I'd say that. Um, basically, Gordon Greenwich was important. Why is Gordon Greenwich so important? Basically, because he's the first post Windrush cricketer to play for the West Indies. Gordon Greenwich is different because he comes here as a 14 year old from Barbados. Okay? By, his, by the time he's 18, 19, he's playing for Hampshire, uh, opening the bat batting with uh, Barry Richards, who was another hero of mine, even though he was South African. Um, and he, he becomes available to play for England and the West Indies. He's one of the f uh, first players of Caribbean descent, born in Barbados, of course, who could play for either team. And in his, in his autobiography, he says, he's that, is that close to playing for England? That close. Uh, he ended up playing for Barbados in the regional tournament and then playing for the West Indies. Of course, when Gordon Greenwich goes down to play for Barbados, having been away for seven years, typical, this is a typical West Indian mindset. They say, English boy, go home, English boy. Because Gordon Greenwich is seen as an English boy, not a West Indian. Even though he's born in Barbados, he's lived in England for seven years. He's gone back. And they think that he's taken the place of a West Indian. So that's very interesting, this Gordon Greenwich story. I mean, I used to get that when I used to go to the Caribbean. I used to go out, I used to play in the village in Barbados with my family. Oh, I was brought up here, right? And then I used to, you know, and people said, the guys in the village would say, oh, he's playing cricket. He's just like a typical Englishman. Because all my family were playing all these extravagant shots, and I was going like this. Because my thing was, I just want to stay at the wicket. I don't want to get out. So I'd, bat, I'd stay on the beach, I'd bat for an hour. So what, I'm not out. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Fine. And then all my family would be jumping up and down saying, English boy, the typical, typical, typical English boy. Here's me thinking, oh, I thought I was West Indian. But obviously, when I go to the Caribbean, I'm English. Then I'm in England, and everything's I'm West Indian. How does that work out? All the English folks in England sound West Indian. All the West Indians in the West Indies sound English. Funny, that. <laughs> but that's identity, isn't it? Your head gets pulled around, but that's the typical diaspora experience. Clive Lloyd, well, it's obvious why I like him. Leader of a fantastic team. Also went to school with my mum <laughs> in Georgetown. Zahir Abbas, I love Zahir Abbas. Pakistani guy with glasses. Fantastic, elegant batsman. Scored 200 runs in one test I watched on TV. Because during the summer holidays, it was fantastic. If I was here, not in the Caribbean, I'd watch England play anybody in a test series. You know, anybody. You know, I'd love the commentators. Jim Laker, he's fantastic. I love Jim Laker's Lancashire Burr. I love him. And, he's, and occasionally, he'll say something funny in a West Indian accent. He'll say, oh, it it on the up, man. You know, Kind of really funny. I love Jim Laker. So I watch England play anybody during the six weeks holiday, you know. And Zahir Abbas scoring 200 runs for, the pa for Pakistan against England. That was fantastic. Ian Botham, who wouldn't like Ian Botham? Let's move on. Gary Sobers, Barbados legend. Sometimes I can be very, very um, sectarian about my cricket. I do like the Guyanese and the Bajan players doing well. I do have a little bit of that. Even though I've got a pan-Caribbean mindset, there's something in me that says I do like the Bajans. And also, 
my mum has a lot of Trinidadian friends, right? She has a lot of Trinidadian friends. And when we're in the house, we're always arguing, always arguing. The Trinities are really boisterous. We did this, and they're saying to my dad, who's Bajan, my dad's saying, you're stealing all our fish, coming in our fishing areas, stealing all our fish. So we all have that. And then my dad would say to my mum, because my dad's Guyanese, my mum's uh, Guyanese, my dad's Bajan, he would say, you're not even, you're not even West Indian, you're South American. <laughs> now that's, uh, but you know what Bajans are like? They can turn that on, on people like that. You know, you know. And I say, you know, this is one of the strange things. When you're Guyanese, or half Guyanese, or when you spend a lot of time in Guyana, like I have, it's very strange trying to explain why do people from South America play cricket for the West Indies? I've had that said to me so often. And I have to say, well, basically, Guyana, it's in South America, but in the early 1800s, it was, became a British colony after years of domination by the Dutch. Therefore, it becomes immersed and linked to the rest of the Caribbean islands. British rule since the early 1800s. English is the first language, politically, economically, and culturally linked to the Caribbean and part of CARICOM. Guyana has more in common with Trinidad and Barbados than it does with Brazil and Suriname, basically. I won't go on. Alan Knott, great wicketkeeper. I love Knott. He was a little bit untidy, had a very strange stance, but I still liked him. Dennis Lilly, who gave the West Indies the absolute hammering in 1975 in Australia. Um, Alvin Kalitran got back at him in the uh, one-day World Cup in 1975 at the Oval when he hammered Lily all over the place. I loved that. I could watch that on YouTube all night. But Dennis Lilly, I love Dennis Lilly. He was a real character. He was always the kind of Australian that I thought Australians were like, bristling, big tashes, probably drank a lot of beer, always wanted to hurt someone when he bowled. I loved him. Dennis Underwood. Dennis Underwood. I loved Dennis Underwood. That silky, deadly run-up. Always did well on, on wet wickets for some reason. Yeah, I was a big fan of Derek Underwood, and I love... His, 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 his action and the way he took loads of wickets. And uh, I think I liked him because the West Indies, apart from Lance Gibbs, have never had spin bowlers in recent years that have really inspired me. So I've always liked spin bowlers from other countries. Michael Holding, who would not like Michael Holding? When I was a kid, we used to play lots of matches in the park and in the back way in various parts of England where I lived. One of the things was I'd play England v West Indies with my friend Nick, and I'd bowl against him in a local park. I'd go back like 70 yards, because that's what Michael Holding did on TV. And I'd stand, and it would take me like almost like half an hour to get to the wicket. But I just wanted to be like Michael Holding, because he took these enormous run-ups. So yeah, that's, that's kind of it, really. So <laughs> a bit of com slight comedy at the end. So yeah, that's kind of it. I mean, there might be this bit of time for questions. If people want to ask me anything, feel free. Um, people want to fancy buy a book, feel free. Uh, if you want a chocolate orange, feel free. I'm also um, taking pictures from my website as well if anybody wants to you know pop up and get involved in that experience so uh, yeah if I can find my phone so, yeah so that's kind of I'm throwing uh, open to you if, if anybody's got any any questions of any sort to ask if you're interested this podcast is copyright to the National Archives all rights reserved <laughs>